Hello, everyone. I'm Dana Stewart-Bullock, and this is Transformational Therapeutics. Today will be the first of two podcasts on the huge subject of self. We will start out by discussing the origins in infancy of the sense of self, its impact throughout life, and how one's sense of self can be transformed. So welcome. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Today we are talking about a big subject. Is well, we're talking about it because the wonderful Joe, our sound engineer and, and all-around fixer-upper, mentioned it last week. So I thought, okay, this is a good subject. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he had a really good idea. Maybe it might have been a little difficult, but I think it's going to be an amazing episode. It was huge. <laughs> yes. So without further ado, we're talking today about the concept of self. So what's the definition? Well, there are a few definitions that come down to self is a person's essential being that distinguishes them from others, the individuality and identity of a person, which is sort of nebulous in my book. Yeah. But that's a starting point. Mm -hmm. And so to differentiate myself from yourself is however I define it. To me, there are different levels of self. There's the sort of ego self, the self that we present to the world. And then there's a much deeper, what Jung called the capital S self. Right. It just goes on from there. What does Jung say about self? Well, he talks at length about, and he talks about different developmental stages in life. And actually, his whole theory about individuation was about getting in touch with what he called the capital S self, which is the essence of who we are not necessarily what we present to the world. Mm. I'm going to sort of play around with that because I also attach it. I was doing research with Clarissa Pinkola Estes and some other people, and it seems to be sort of the instinctive aspect of ourselves that oftentimes we ignore or is not developed, particularly now in this culture these days. Oh, interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Especially, I think one of the reasons why this subject is so big is because there's so many different facets to the definition, different cultures, different spiritualities, different psychologists, I'd say, could all define it slightly different. So it'll be interesting to hear, I guess, an introduction of the concept, right, today? Well, I think what I would like to start with is the development of the self as an infant Mm. and how that develops and then take off from there. Mm, I think that could be valuable. Really vital. So uh, an infant is born. And at that point, the infant does not see itself as separate from the mother. Right. And over time, that separation develops. So at birth, the self is not really present. And the way that it emerges over the early life has to do with how the infant is treated by the mother or the caregiver. Mm. So it's a process of learning about its own beingness. And developmentally, first, they're so connected to the mother, and then eventually you get divergence and separation. And developmentally, the infant then becomes more aware of itself as something separate from the mother. The development of a healthy self depends on the health of the relationship between the infant and the mother, and the actual health of the mother. Right. As you're speaking, it sounds almost like the the mother's sense of self would also be important here. 
there was a, a man, uh, Dr. Winnicott, who was a pediatrician and a psychoanalyst, and he studied this at length. And he talked, and I will quote him, he says, simply because there's something about the mother of a baby soothing, which is oftentimes automatic that she's able to soothe her baby and protect her infant when the infant is vulnerable. And that is something that the baby needs because its own nervous system is still developing early on. And so actually the mother becomes the surrogate nervous system for that infant. Mm, Right. And Winnicott talks about the mother being able to fulfill the role if she feels secure, if she feels loved in relation to the father and to her family and in the widening circles around her family, which constitutes society. So it really requires the stability and the selfhood of the mother in order to develop it in the infant. Right. He also talks about, he says, the emotional development of the first year of life comprises the foundation of the mental health of the human individual. Wow, so the emotional health of the first year of life will then dictate the mental health of the adult. Yes. That says a lot. Yes. (laughs) And the emotional health will be dependent upon the mother's sense of self and how the mother becomes the emotional health of the infant. Meaning like the mother is the nervous system, the surrogate nervous system for her infant. So therefore she is also her emotional or their, her child's emotional health. Absolutely. So, mm. And and sensory wise, I'll get into that in a, in a few minutes, the sensations that come into the developing brain, mm. which I've talked about in other um, podcasts, the sense of touch, hearing, sight, taste, and smell are all what impact the developing brain. And the mother has such a, a huge amount of impact on those in the infant, and therefore on the developing brain of the infant. And Winnicott talked about the good enough mother. You know, nobody's perfect, not by a long shot, but the good enough mother. If the mothering is not good enough, then the infant becomes a collection of reactions. It reacts to the impingement upon its being, and the true self of the infant fails to form, or it hides behind a false self so that it can then interact with its caregiver. Interesting. Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah. So an infant is totally dependent, a human infant. Is, I mean, you see a baby horse being born and it gets up and it's grazing and dancing around or whatever within minutes. Right. But a human infant requires a much longer time to develop. The brain doesn't stop developing until their mid-20s. Right. And apparently we have given up evolutionarily, because our brains are so big, we have given up the instantaneous ability to be independent for having a bigger brain. So over time, as you're growing up, your parents and your culture and your society have an impact on how that brain develops. So a horse doesn't have as big of a brain as a human, so is born... I don't know about brain size, but evolutionarily, it's not as advanced. Hmm as our brains are. Right. And I use that term advanced relatively. Brains of mammals are all pretty much the same. They're layered. And ours has the most layers and the highest evolutionary, quote unquote, ability. Right. So our, I mean, kind of in context with this subject, our ability to even contemplate the self indicates of our 
the advanced part of the brain, right. which because of that advancement requires longer time to develop, which also means we're have a longer period of time to be affected by society, by our parents, by upbringing, by whatever. And so, so a human infant is born and it cannot take care of itself. It can't feed itself. I mean, it has sure. to be taken to the breast or whatever. It is literally incapable of surviving without the mother. Right. And that's a huge thing. Absolutely. And they, infants in general live in sort of a weird place where nothing has been separated out as me versus not me. They don't have that in their brains. And so they are a part of the caregivers that take care of them, particularly the mother. So could that mean that even if a neighbor comes over to visit a newborn and holds the neighbor, the newborn would interpret that person as itself as well? Or can't differentiate this? They can't different. really differentiate. Interesting. This is from another book called Ghosts from the Nursery, which is a book about early development and its impact later on in life, particularly with juvenile delinquents. So in this book, they talk about identification is what the infant starts with. It's not that he identifies himself with the mother, but rather that no mother, no object external to the self is known. So it doesn't differentiate between itself and the external world. It's sort of a part of everything. Mm. And they talk about that the self of the infant at a very early stage is only potential. Hmm. Like a, like a seed. Yes. Seed of a tree is potential. And even before that, the self has not yet formed and so cannot be said to be merged yet with the mother. That's how primitive it is. What do you, what does that mean? Explain that a little bit. In the very beginning, it's sort of like they're a blob. Mm. And I don't know what the timing is, but over time, they then become part of the mother. They don't differentiate between themselves and the mother. And then eventually, one differentiates oneself from the mother in infancy. I'm not sure where in the development that is. If they're being raised, handled, whatever, appropriately. Mm. And even though that the infant itself is not formed, in its livingness, Memories and expectation can be imprinted on the infant very early on. So uh, the infant doesn't just live in the present moment is basically what you're saying. Well, it lives in the present moment, but the impressions that come in are impressed on its physiology somewhere. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about what I believe is so important about physiology. Right. So if you're an infant and a dog barks and there's a loud noise and it scares you, that impression could be stored in the tissues to then affect you that as an adult. That fear impression, absolutely. That's a startle response. And over time, that particular startle response should be overcome by other factors as the infant ages. But depending on how it's raised from early on, that will um, impact it or not. Mm. So what's really important is the input over time that is supportive to the growth of the baby. Mm. And also just because development occurs in stages that build on each other, that which occurs first tends to echo throughout subsequent development. So if you have a healthy holding environment, remember we did a podcast on containment. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is where containment really starts in the physiology of the infant, the feelingness of being held and contained. Mm. And if that doesn't happen early on, that will influence you throughout life. It'll affect each subsequent layer. Right. 
Exactly. Like a foundation of a house, if there's a big chunk missing, then that's going to affect the walls above it and the ceiling above that. Can we talk a little bit about, you You mentioned before, if an infant is raised appropriately, it will develop the sense of self and, and all the things that you've, you've shared so far. Could you share a little bit about what that would be? Like what that looks like? Appropriate or good enough that, yeah, well, like the there's actually parent? a whole list from, I believe, Winnicott about what a good enough mother is. Mm. There are three things that are important. One is holding. I've talked at length about, about the physiology and the sense of touch and how important it is. And in order to feel safe in your own physiology, particularly as an infant, you need to be held. I remember I was in Moscow once and, and there was a newborn and they swaddled it. I don't know that we do that here so much anymore, but they wrapped this baby up so tight. It was fascinating. The baby just calmed right down. <laughs> yeah, talk about containment. We need, need that feeling, the pressure. And so he talks about satisfactory holding is basic to caring. Faulty holding. This I thought this was fascinating. Faulty holding. So think about an infant in space. It's been in the womb. It's been held in the womb for nine long months, and it's used to being dimensionally held everywhere. For sure. And touches the actual first sense that develops. Hmm. So it has felt that containment throughout. That containment needs to be continued for whatever period of time. So that manifests as being held by the mother. Without good holding and containment, what happens is that produces extreme distress in the infant, giving it the basis for the sense of going to pieces, hmm. the sense of falling forever. And the feeling that external reality cannot be used for reassurance. So that's the import of holding and containing an infant. And so actual handling, the way you handle, just think about it, our own bodies as an infant, the way that you're handled impresses on your central nervous system. Right. So if you're not handled gently or contained well or... You know, I've seen people pick babies up by their hands before they're really developed enough to hold their shoulders in. Just the feeling of not being contained would then produce the feeling of lack of safety in your own physiology. Right. So the basically the the goal for ideal holding would be to create that sense of safety in the infant's own physiology. Right. Exactly. So even when the infant becomes a toddler and as, throughout development as the shoulders develop and everything still holding the child in a way that feels safe and doesn't create that feeling of okay my shoulders aren't strong enough to hold me right now so when you pick me up that makes me feel unsafe that makes me feel like i'm and that I'm will be part. all unconscious but it will be registered in the tissues right if it's held that way so handling the baby facilitates the formation of psychosomatic partnership with the adult. So psychosomatic, I did a podcast on psyche, and soma means the physical form. So the handling impacts the, the psychology and the physical form of all of us, how we're handled early on. In a way that would imprint, like you were saying, leave impressions on the physiology. Yes. And so how we move in the world, how we feel in the world, right. how we experience touch in the world? Would, would it all be that kind of way? Yes. And I remember I once had a friend who would vacation in Jamaica and she would say, she said, you know, Jamaican babies don't cry. 
because they're carried on their mother's back all the time. Hmm. So there's a security to that. Unskilled handling teaches the physiology of the infant. It teaches it on some unconscious level. You don't get as much development actually of muscle tone or coordination, and it reduces the infant's pleasure in its bodily function and its essence of being. I don't know. I mean, I don't have children. I've worked with them for long enough, but I don't know how many current moms really hold their child for very long periods of time. And when I think about some of the techniques like ferberizing a baby, letting it cry itself to sleep, it seems so anti-health. Yeah. It just doesn't seem very healthy. I think that is changing. There's like co-sleeping has become more popular now. Well, it goes through such cycles. You know, I'm old and I can remember when, you know, my friends many years ago had their babies with them. And then it came a time of not breastfeeding and only bottle feeding and having a nanny and all of that. So I think it depends. Sure. It probably, it's like, it's almost like dieting. There's different fads, new research that comes out, then everyone tries it and go on from there. So just in general, development from infancy is a matter of the inheritance of a maturational process and the accumulation of living experience. And so the environment for that body, I mean, I know it may be your child, but just think about all of the sensory input to that body and how it helps develop the brain and the confidence in the child and coordination and muscle tone and all of that. That's your job as the mom in many ways, Hmm. to give that infant that security, that safety. Right. And, and that input. Will, yeah, input. That will influence, influence them for the rest of their lives. Wow. This is a quote from, I think, Winnicott. Without the special state of the mother, there can be no true emergence of the infant from the original state. The best that can happen then is the development of a false self hiding what vestige that may be of the true self. Alice Miller is an author who wrote Drama of the Gifted Child. She's written a number of books. She was a psychologist. And she once described in the beginning of one of the chapters in one of her books that a baby is born. I will not do it justice. She wrote much more eloquently than I'm speaking. But a baby is born and it's whisked from the mother into the nursery. So it's taken from this warm, wet womb and put in a nursery. And at some point it will be returned to the mother. Oftentimes now they just lay the baby directly on the breast, but if the mother's sick or if there's a problem with the birth, that sort of thing. Right. And the way she described it is that the infant will be lying there and diapered, and it will pee in its diapers. And the pee feels really good. It's warm. It's wonderful. And then it gets cold. And then the baby cries. And if the baby is not attended to immediately, it keeps crying. It's so uncomfortable and then learns very quickly that crying does not bring help. And so it stops crying. Hmm. And that can be the beginning of a lifelong problem. Unless somebody comes in, unless there are other forces in the baby's upbringing over time, and, and usually there are in family, that sort of thing, to counter any early difficulty. Hmm. But in that instance, that infant learns that it has to give up its quote-unquote self for someone else, Hmm. that its needs will not be taken care of right away. And it can't take care of its own needs. It can't change its own diaper. It can't make itself feel better if it's wrapped in a cold, wet diaper. Right. And I'm just thinking about it even in in the context of when what you were saying earlier, that when we're born, we don't 
everything is is the self. So it's also learning that you can't rely on yourself. Right. That if I need something, but well, you can't I'm- regulate yourself. Yeah. Because you're physically you're not capable. Right. But that's a lesson that that lodges somewhere in your being. Versus if you're born and placed right to your mother, and you go from one warmth to another to more holding and the same experience happens and your needs are attended to it reaffirms a new feedback loop a a positive feedback loop of oh when i have a need it's solved and i'm okay and the thing that actually really changes the brain is relationships and so early on the relationship that you have with your caregiver is what impacts most your development Mm -hmm. And there's some good evidence that, you know, people talk about it being DNA, but there's really good evidence that it's much more environmental and your environment includes your caregiver, especially. I'm curious if you mentioned a healthy level of holding and then the unskilled holding, is there, could there also be, I'm just thinking about the Verber method that you mentioned. I'm just wondering, is there also something to be said? Is there is there value in holding and not holding as well? Well, I think it's such a skill level over time because you want over time to teach the child experientially how to regulate itself. Mm. But first you have to experience regulation. Right. And then you can peel away layers of regulation and it can learn to regulate itself. Mm. But those are little minor steps over time. For me, when I was working with a a young autistic child, and this may not be the best comparison, but it was like I would teach the child, well, the child's brain, and when the brain sort of took on the information, and not until, I would then up the ante. Mm. And so if a child is secure, then you can take away some of the security a little bit at a time, but they need to know that they are safe. And it's almost like if you were in the room with a baby and you walked three feet away and it cried, then you go to two feet and it stops crying and then you back up even more. It's, it's it incremental over time separation. So the, the child, having experienced regulation, then learns how to regulate itself mm. with the encouragement of the caregiver. So the goal is, I mean, I think it's very helpful to know this. I don't have children, but if I were to have a child, I would find this information really useful that when I give birth, I would want to know that, oh, okay, this, my child does not know the difference between me and it. So I would want, like knowing that my goal is to be their nervous system, to help them regulate, and then over time develop the independence, the separation from me in a healthy way. Right. And oftentimes mothers don't know that they're separate from the child, which right. also is the flip side and can cause problems. Absolutely. Because then when the child is ready, is to, ready to separate and the mother is not yet, right. will latch on. So it's sort of a dance between the two and it's really being alert to it and being willing. It's, it's a huge task. It is. Yeah. It's not an easy job. Right. I think it's the hardest job there is. Right. And there, there's a doctor, Alan Shore, who is, I believe, a psychiatrist. He talks about the self emerging over the course of infancy, but it emerges over the course of infancy only if it is part of a relationship with the caregiver. That is, the emergence of self requires more than just a genetically programmed or inborn tendency to organize experiences. It requires certain types of experiences that are presented and performed by an emotionally attuned caregiver. 
What this means is that the relationship is the crucible, the nurturing matrix out of which the child's self is cultivated. Hmm. I've said this for years. I don't know if you remember that James Carville, who was Clinton's advisor, Clinton's head of something, and he used to say, it's the economy, stupid. I have always said, it's the relationship, stupid. Hmm. It's the most important thing is the relationship itself for all of us in infancy and then beyond. I think that people go into parenthood without necessarily knowing all of this or thinking about it beforehand. Sure. Well, and also coming full circle, a lot of parents will go into parenthood unregulated themselves, not in touch with their own self, feel, you know, all, all of that. So it's, it's like trying to teach someone to swim when you don't know how to swim. Right. Like you're flailing around and trying to teach someone else to do the backstroke and they just can't. Right. It, it It's not your fault. No, no. At all. And it also is just, to me, further inspiration to do this work, to embrace transformational therapeutics and other things like this, to, to get curious and lean in to your own internal world to do this work, especially like it is so for everyone else that it's so important that if you're not regulated yourself, you can't regulate, you can't help regulate another person. Right. 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 Exactly. And particularly if they're, you know, your DNA, if they're part, really a part of you. Right, right. Well, and also I would love to point out, because you just were mentioning relationship. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on you can also do a tremendous amount of healing within relationship. I think it's really the only way you can do the healing. I think it's, it's vital. Even if it's, you know, if it's a relationship with an animal or with a person, you need the feedback loops in order to heal. Absolutely. Right. So if, if someone's listening to this, really resonating with some of these things, either in themselves or with their children or with their parents and feeling, oh, wow, that explains that, that explains that, that explains that. Well, now what? Does that mean that I'm just going to be dysregulated for the rest of my life? Does that mean there's no hope? But based on what you just said, we can heal within relationship. So knowing this information can be really useful to then help us lean into work on creating some stronger feedback loops and changing the brain in a, in a new way. What are your thoughts about oh, well, my that? Thought, I have multiple thoughts, but the first thing that comes to mind is the old adage, you know, you marry your mother, you marry your father. Mm-hmm. I think we do that as a way of trying to work out stuff from early on that we weren't able to work out. Right. And if you see it like that, it doesn't mean that your husband is your father, but he will have similar attributes or energetic imprints. I would see it as an opportunity to heal myself. I Yeah, I heard somewhere... I don't remember where they said that you could marry either one, that it's really the parent that you have together or whatever. It's like the, whoever you have unfinished business with. Right. And that goes back to my whole thing about if something has a charge in you Mm. or someone brings a charge to you, that's something inside of you that is not resolved. And that person will represent some aspect of your life earlier on where that was unresolved. And so you get the opportunity to change it with that person Mm. or not. Right. It's your choice. Right. And that's the beauty of it because when you were an infant, it was not your choice, but now it is. And you just might not know that the choice is there until you listen to something like this. I'm sorry to focus on pathology, but the book called The Ghost from the Nursery, which was written by, I think, a couple of social workers, 
and it had to do with early imprints causing future delinquency. Dr. Bruce Perry, I believe he's a pediatrician, and they talk about how for the newborn, while conscious memories of the day will be lost, the somatic, the body sense of what this world is like begins, actually begins with emerging from the womb Hmm. and the feeling of that comes with emerging from the womb. So if you had a C-section, what does that do? (laughs) Well, as a cranial person, as a person who works on cranial, one of the reasons that you go through the birth canal is in that process, you are compressed and the fluids are compressed out of your body as you travel through the birth canal, including in your cranium. Mm. So you're in a womb that's a lot of fluid and you're floating around and then you get squeezed through the birth canal, it takes the fluid out. Mm. It also does something touch-wise and compression-wise, neurologic. Sure. So if you're a C-section, you don't have the benefit of that. And kids' heads, kids who are C-section kids, have their craniums are very different from kids who've gone through the birth canal. Mm. I found over time, they've never had that kind of compressive force. And so their heads are actually tighter. Mm. It's fascinating. That is fascinating. So there's a reason we're born the way we're born. Nature has its reasons. Yes. And so in this book, they talk about, I'm going to refer back to, to birth, It's the first experience of life in this world, and it won't be recorded in language or retrievable in rational thought, but the limbic brain remembers and our body remembers. It's really interesting. Here is how we build our model of what to expect in the world, who will be there, how we will be received, how safe it is out there, how we can make ourselves known and be comforted. Mm. So Dr. Stephen Porges, who wrote about um, the vagal nerve and kids who are in ICUs, infants, newborns that are put in ICUs and the hyper arousal that happens in them and that continues throughout their lives. Hmm. And so that's just another concern. And that's not normal, healthy holding if you're stuck in an ICU in an incubator and you're having, you know, all kinds of monitors on your body and that sort of thing. So these, these are all things that influence our sense of self as infants, where it starts. That's so interesting. I was having a conversation with someone actually on my podcast about people who are highly sensitive. And I'm just curious if that could be one of the reasons that could create a highly sensitive individual. Totally, because it's actually a traumatic experience. Right. And you become hyper alert to your environment. It's a survival mechanism and it's inculcated so early in your brain. Wow. Yeah. And that being highly sensitive creates a feeling of being overwhelmed by everything, like overwhelmed Every by sensory it. input. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. And they talk about the neural thermostat becomes stuck on high with early trauma. Huh. So you're hyper alert. Yeah. It, and it can, the same thing can happen with later trauma. I mean, PTSD, that's classic. Sure. But, but the kids who are in the ICU, just imagine going from a warm, wet womb to all the lights and the hard surfaces and things attached to you and you're not being held. And so you survive at, you know, what cost? Right. This episode has been really enlightening. I, I'm already, my brain is, is running on just taking all of this information in. My question for you as, as we wrap up today is what, what would you love listeners to take away from this episode? What would be like the most important thing, the most valuable thing to their own healing, to people around them, whatever it may be? 
I think primarily that your sense of self of who you are is really based very early on in your life. There's a difference between being full of ego self and being full of a true self. If you are full of your true self, you don't have the need to to justify, to be loud, to correct others. You're just full of yourself. Right. And that starts really early on. That is dependent on how you are raised as an infant, and it can all be changed over time. Hmm. I think that's such a powerful message. And based on everything that you shared today, it really does, it really does resonate. And I think it's, I think this episode's great. So thank you so much for, for sharing this information with all of us. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode as well, we would love it if you would take a moment to share it with someone for them to learn this information as well. Take a moment to send it through a text, an email, post on social media, help us spread these messages to help more people. 